Hello, and welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon. Great to have you back again as we look ahead to Week 7 CFL action. We'll also break down what we witnessed last week as usual, but before we dive into that, I'll remind you that you can get in touch by following me on Twitter at kdrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E-8-8, or paying a visit to the website firstlinepicks.com. All questions, comments, and feedback, positive or negative, is always welcome, so don't be a stranger. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, week six is one for the history books. Probably not our best week as we came up short on a few of our sides despite beating the market, but at least most of the defenses around the league showed up as advertised and cashed all those underleans. So we had the winless Argonauts in Calgary for the Thursday nighter, and unfortunately for the boatmen, that winless description remains intact. And this is too bad because they really did a lot of good things out on that field, but as we see so often in this sport, it only takes a few bad plays to undo many good ones, and that's pretty much what happened here. This was Toronto's best offensive effort of the season by a pretty significant margin in terms of efficiency and sustaining drives. McLeod Bethel-Thompson passed at just under a 60% success rate and had 17 plays of 10 or more yards. That will normally result in more than two touchdowns and a field goal, but the turnovers were the story. Four interceptions and three fumbles is just not something that you can recover from, and by my count, four of those seven turnovers were unforced. Two of those picks were just plain awful decisions with the football, particularly the ball slung into the hands of linebacker Corey Greenwood late in the third quarter that took near certain points off the board in a ten-point game. I thought Jacques Chapdelaine called a better game than he has up to this point, even if there were still a few short passes called in second and long situations that really served no purpose other than ending a drive. The Argos didn't run a ton considering the number of snaps they took, but with the success Bethel Thompson was having when he wasn't completing passes to guys in the wrong uniform, it made sense to keep it in the air. Picking up yardage on the ground on first down remained a sore spot, with only three rushes for more than five yards. I was hoping to see Brandon Burks with more than four touches in this game, as once again James Wilder didn't have much going on, and he's sitting at less than 200 rushing yards in five games now, which is shockingly low. That's not all on him, but at some point, you've got to make a guy miss, and that fumble in the fourth quarter was absolutely terrible and once again took points off the board. The other side of the ball improved for the fifth consecutive game for Toronto, at least in terms of success rate. They got a couple of thank-you-very-much interceptions from Nick Arbuckle, and overall they did a good job of limiting Calgary in all areas. This was the second straight game of the Stampeders struggling significantly on offense, and a defensive score and a blocked punt that led to an easy field goal had to be the difference on the scoreboard. By the numbers, this was the worst offensive showing yet from a Calgary squad that's really only potent for about five quarters this whole season. I continue to be surprised by the lack of any running game from a team that has been strong in that area year in and year out. I've generally liked what I've seen from Kadeem Carey so far, but for whatever reason, Dave Dickinson continues to heavily favor passing on first downs and second and mediums. I thought this was quite easily Nick Arbuckle's worst game with two bad picks being thrown, and he wasn't able to stretch the field at all with a season low of just a single pass play going for more than 20 yards. This Calgary team is really starting to remind me of last season's Saskatchewan Rough Riders, in the sense that they might be a bigger threat to score with their defense on the field at this point. I'm not sure if a defensive back has ever been in the conversation for most outstanding player, but Trey Roberson is making his case in the early portion of this season, adding a 41-yard scoop and score to his already impressive stat line. 
As for the off-field action, Toronto sent a slew of betters home empty-handed after the 10.5 open saw the majority of the action go Calgary's way, eventually closing at 13.5 just before kickoff. It's lamentable that the Stamps couldn't manage to find an extra point for their backers on the opening number, but at the end of the day this was a game they were probably fortunate not to lose outright. A scoreless fourth quarter was able to clinch an under that looked to be in serious trouble in the third, so hopefully you were on the right side of that one. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers just kept doing what they do on Friday night, handing the Ottawa Red Blacks their third straight loss in another Bombers game that was essentially over at halftime. Ottawa's performance on offense in this one was about as bad as we are likely to see all year, and I don't think Dominic Davis would have made a difference in this one. The Jonathan Jennings stat line obviously sticks out like a sore thumb with just 45 yards passing, but he had very little help out there. And after the ill-advised throw that got run back for six the other way, he didn't actually make any more critical errors. I thought there were several very catchable balls that got dropped out there, and the Bombers' secondary was dialed in as well and made a number of great individual plays. Marcus Sales and Chandler Fenner both had great games, and with RJ Harris out of the lineup, there just isn't a lot to worry about in this Ottawa receiver core right now. Dominic Rimes has shown some flashes, but he's not yet at the level that he might be down the road. And I think Brad Sinopoli is now experiencing life as the number two guy on the depth chart, and he's just not getting the matchup advantages that he had when Greg Ellingson and Deontay Spencer were on the field last year. The offensive line probably had their worst outing of the year in this one as well. And to be fair, Winnipeg's defensive line is making a lot of opponents look bad in that regard. But giving up pressure off the edge with three and four man rushes is, is going to halt a lot of offenses no matter who's in a quarterback. It's hard to truly evaluate the performance of the Red Blacks defense in this one. I thought they were generally okay outside of giving up the two big plays for touchdowns in the second quarter, considering how often the inept offense had them on the field and the injuries they were dealing with. I think if you told Rick Campbell before the game that his defense was going to give up 24, he'd have probably taken it in the position he was in with Pruno and Rose both injured. I thought schematically they did a passable job, and it was mainly missed tackles and bad pursuit that did a lot of the damage. This is where the lack of talent on the roster is starting to become evident, and they just don't have the depth to deal with several starters being sidelined. Winnipeg had a few guys out themselves, and this was definitely a spot where I felt they could be vulnerable to a letdown, maybe not to the point that they were actually going to lose the game, but until Pruno and Rose were declared out late in the week, the market was pretty cautious and we saw this number bounce around between 10.5 and 12.5 on game day, eventually closing right in the middle of that at minus 11.5 for the Bombers. I would say Chris Strevler's goal line sneak at the end of the first half was probably the point of no return as far as Ottawa potentially covering, and at that point the only real concern would have been Winnipeg scoring 50 and spoiling the under, which went on to cash comfortably. I went into Saturday's game between Montreal and Edmonton with the position that I still needed to see a bit more out of the Alouettes before I declared them for real, and they delivered a third straight win to silence doubters such as myself. I would say the offense is still a bit of a work in progress, but that Eskimos defense came to play and Vernon Adams made several huge plays under pressure, and importantly never made the crucial mistake against what has been a very strong defensive unit. Philip Lowley stuck with his blitz-heavy sets and the pressure got to Adams repeatedly, but when you bring six on a blitz, somebody is usually open, and Adams made a few risky but rewarding throws off his back foot to receivers in space. I'm not sure that's something you want to depend on being able to do regularly, but the athletic ability that Adams is showing in the pocket right now isn't going away anytime soon, and I think we're probably at the point now where we can say that Montreal no longer has a problem at the quarterback position. 
Kahari Jones's offenses as a whole had never really delivered consistently strong results in his time as a coordinator, but he deserves a lot of credit for what he's managed to get out of Adams that nobody prior to now was able to. While the turnaround on offense is going to get the headlines, it was really the play of the defense that carried the day against the Eskimos. This is a defense that looks so bad against Edmonton in Week 1 that it's hard to believe it was the same team on the field in this game. But this just continues the upward trend in all facets that Montreal has displayed during this three-game winning streak. I mentioned last week that Montreal gave up 27 plays of 10 or more yards against Edmonton in their first meeting, and they cut that down to 9 in this one, with a couple of those coming in garbage time anyway. If you're not able to develop your own talent, signing former Stampeders in free agency isn't a bad plan B, and for all he got wrong as GM, managing to bring Siante Evans and Patrick Levels to town in the offseason might just have been Cavus Reed's best decision. This Montreal secondary just continues to get better now that they've had a few weeks together as a unit, and they had blanket coverage on Edmonton receivers all afternoon. This definitely wasn't Trevor Harris's best game, but there just weren't a lot of open looks, and he didn't have much help from the ground game either. Montreal had given up no fewer than nine successful runs in any of their previous four games, so only giving up three in this one was a huge win for that defensive line. I thought Edmonton could have done more to try and get the run game established, but I remain largely unimpressed with C.J. Gable's first cut out of the backfield. Like I said in regards to James Wilder, at some point you've got to make a play even if there isn't a gaping hole opened up, and this is three games in a row now of pretty ineffective running from Gable. I was pretty high on Edmonton minus four coming into that game, as you know if you listened last week, and the market did eventually move this out to minus six and a half by Saturday afternoon. I thought there were a couple of pretty tough calls from the men in the stripes that went against Edmonton at a couple of key junctures, but ultimately the offense just couldn't ever get rolling and they didn't ever give me the feeling that they were going to cover this number after Kenny Stafford's second quarter touchdown got called back on a hold and they had to settle for a field goal instead of a tied ball game. Anyone who was on that under 54 had a stress-free afternoon as both defenses largely controlled the play in this one. The last game of the week saw the Rough Riders pull away from the Lions in the fourth quarter to secure a victory in the battle of desperate teams, and they will face each other again this week. I'll tie the recap of that one into the preview of the next one, so we'll revisit these teams in detail a little later in the program. On to week seven we move, and the action will come at us early and often with the rare Thursday night doubleheader, which begins in Ottawa with the Red Blacks taking on the Stampeders for the second and final time this season. I must say, I don't envy the bookmaker that had to put together the opening line for this one, as Ottawa comes in banged up and slumping, while the Stampeders continue to struggle on offense, yet also continue to average around 30 points per game in spite of it. In my mind, the debate was going to center around where in the 7-10 to 10 range the books were going to land this, so I was a little surprised to see Calgary as a fairly short favorite, opening at minus 5 points, a number which is inching its way upwards as we speak. There really hasn't been a ton to love about what Calgary's done on the offensive side of the ball the last two weeks. There hasn't been much to love about any aspect of the Red Blocks game since week two. I guess I'll get to the positives first before driving the bus over them repeatedly in the next few minutes. I did really like what they got out of Devontae Dedman in the return game against Winnipeg. He looked to me like a straight-ahead runner with excellent vision that made some really good cuts in traffic, and he was consistently providing positive returns. And you could say a lot of those same things about John Crockett at running back, starting in place of Moses Madu. He showed an ability to make the first man miss that I haven't seen much of from Madu, and to my eye, he's a much bigger threat to pick up a big gain than the man he replaced. He picked up 10-plus yards three times against Winnipeg, and those were about the only three where the offensive line didn't collapse around him. Madu is still on the one-game injured list and presumably unavailable this Thursday as far as I can find out. 
but even when he's back healthy, Crockett is a guy I'd like to see given a bigger role moving forward. Ottawa offensive coordinator Winston October received a lot of praise here and elsewhere for the games he called in the first two weeks of the season, but he's under the gun a little now after three straight weeks of this offense being an impediment. Ottawa surprised some teams in the early going, including the Stampeders team with their unpredictability and tempo, and that's kind of gone away recently. I think they need to get back to more of that. Calgary's still dealing with a lot of injuries on the defensive side of the ball, and when you constantly have new personnel week over week, there's the added potential for some confusion and somebody new missing an assignment if you force them to call in plays on the fly against a no-huddle offense. The first time these teams played, Ottawa tried to run the ball down Calgary's throat, and even though the Stampeders generally limited the damage on a play-by-play -play basis, they were clearly worn down by the fourth quarter and Ottawa ended up coming back in that second half from a fairly sizable deficit. I think a run-first approach is probably their best bet here to start off with, but Jonathan Jennings' ability to convert second and mediums is going to determine whether that's going to be sustainable. The biggest threat to success on the ground looks to be linebacker Corey Greenwood, who I mentioned last week is a guy who has really impressed me, and he might have just had his best game yet against the Argonauts. Talking about a guy coming out of nowhere, Greenwood is a 34-year-old who had 28 career games under his belt coming into this season, and was basically a special teams and injury replacement guy for the most part. But he's suddenly turned into a missile in the middle for Calgary and had both an interception and a forced fumble last game. I do think Crockett has the ability to do damage if he hits the second level. The key is going to be the ability of the offensive line to open some holes and get him through the first level. The Stampeders have totally stuffed the run game on first downs for three straight weeks now, and that's lent a helping hand to a pass defense that has been a bit leaky in terms of giving up conversions. But when opponents are being forced to throw the ball constantly on second down and take some chances, it's created a lot of opportunity for turnovers as well. To shift over to the Stampeders offense, this looks like an ideal time for them to go up against an injury-riddled Ottawa unit that's barely treading water right now. Nick Arbuckle wasn't particularly sharp last game, and the running game remains stuck in neutral, but this Ottawa defense hasn't been able to stop a nosebleed against the pass ever since that first week of the season when they shut down Bo Levi Mitchell. Calgary took a lot of deep shots in that game, and that was a much healthier secondary, so I'd have to imagine Reggie Bagleton and Eric Rogers are going to get some looks early to test out what's back there now. Bagleton has had a great start to the year, but I'm still waiting for Rogers in particular to really make his mark on this season. He's looked a bit off so far and failed to come up with several catches that a receiver of his caliber should be making, but this is as good an opportunity as any to get things turned around. The Stampeder run game has probably been the biggest head-scratcher for me when it comes to evaluating them. Dave Dickinson just hasn't seemed too interested in really giving them a chance to get things moving along the ground, or even in the short passing game. We've seen Winnipeg and BC substitute a lot of pure run calls with swing passes out of the backfield and quick bubble screens. And I'm surprised the Stampeders haven't tried a bit more of this. Calgary has the second fewest first down rushing attempts in the league right now, and that's just a puzzling stat for a team that has either led or been playing within a single score of their opponent for a significant majority of game time so far. I understand the hesitation to make Calgary a favorite by a full touchdown or more in this game. At some point the defense is going to have a game where they don't force multiple turnovers, and right now this offense just isn't trustworthy enough to make up for that. But to repeat myself somewhat from last week when discussing the Ottawa-Winnipeg matchup, I just don't think the Red Blacks in their current state are the team that that letdown game is going to occur against. If this was any team besides the Stampeders managing to pull out wins with defensive and special teams plays, we'd probably be thinking the bubble was about to burst. But Calgary has rightfully earned the reputation of a team that will simply figure out a way to win a football game regardless of how it unfolds or what it ends up looking like on paper later on. 
At two points short of a touchdown, it's just not a number I feel you can pass up on right now against this Red Blacks team. We're starting to see some five and a halfs, even some sixes appear on the board now, and I'd guess we probably end up getting to a full touchdown by the time this kicks off on Thursday night. The total on this one opened at 51 and a half, and we've seen it push down right to 50 in pretty short order. I don't know if it really goes much below that, and for me this number is in no man's land now. It's really tough to make a play on the over in a game involving Ottawa's offense at the moment, but the probability of Calgary attempting to and potentially succeeding in stretching the field against that secondary, on top of both teams maybe having a return man capable of going the distance and lights out field goal kickers, would have me sweating an under on a total this low. Before that game reaches its conclusion, it's likely we'll have kicked off in Edmonton with just two and a half hours stagger between these games. I can't say I'm a huge fan of a league that plays four games per week managing to have two of them going on at the same time, but that little inconvenience will not have any bearing on the line, which has been bet heavily towards the Eskimos thus far, now sitting at minus 12.5 after opening at 10.5 at most shops. The total has been pretty stable at 53 across the board. Before getting into any of the X's and O's of this matchup, I have to bring up something that I was pretty stunned to hear on the TSN broadcast during the last Argonauts game, that I believe absolutely affects the way this game needs to be handicapped. Apparently after their game in Winnipeg two weeks ago, Toronto flew directly to Calgary for the game last Thursday and has remained in Alberta awaiting this game ever since. I haven't done a lot of digging into how CFL teams have arranged their travel plans in recent years but it absolutely astounds me to hear that a team has spent two full weeks out on the road in 2019. I know a lot of teams will stay out east or west when traveling across the country for back-to-backs against teams from the opposite division, but electing to fly from Winnipeg to Calgary instead of back to Toronto seems like a relic from the era of rail travel. There's something to be said for team bonding on a road trip, but 15 days away from home in this day and age is ridiculous. That's 15 days of not practicing at your own facility, coaches not having their own video rooms, team prep meetings happening in hotel rooms, eating at restaurants, and on it goes. This is the time of year where good practices and workouts are essential in rounding teams into mid-season form, and this strikes me as a team putting themselves at a competitive disadvantage that they certainly can't afford at 0-5. If there's a situational advantage to be had anywhere on the Toronto side, it's that Edmonton is on a short prep week after not playing until Saturday afternoon on the other side of the country. Edmonton's offense has hit a snag after looking so good in the first two games of the season, and the onus is definitely on Jason Moss and the offensive coaches to make the necessary tweaks before going up against this Argos defense, which has steadily improved since the start of the year. The balance of run and quick passing that worked so well on first downs in the early going has dried up for this Eskimo offense, and the percentage of second and longs face has steadily risen over the past three games, while the number of explosive plays has trended sharply downwards. They overcame this against BC with a couple of huge plays that flipped the field, but rarely posed a threat to Montreal's secondary last week. The good news this week is that they'll be facing an Argos secondary that still gave up a decent number of chunk plays, despite having a solid game overall last Thursday. I think Trevor Harris needs to try and find somebody, most likely Greg Ellingson, with a longer pass or two to keep that defense honest and create a little more room underneath. Ricky Collins was having a lot of success on those clear-out routes early on, and he's gone a bit cold with just five catches over the last two games. That's a guy I think maybe you try to get a bit more involved again this week. The run game hasn't been at the level it needs to be recently either, and it's been pretty vanilla play calls coming in as well. A lot of runs just straight up the gut, which really doesn't work in this league now like it might have 20 years ago. I think they need to get a little more creative here and maybe give a guy like Natea J a few more looks on a sweep or a quick hitch, sort of in the same manner Winnipeg has used Lucky Whitehead. 
Shaq Cooper is coming off the practice roster and he's going to start in place of C.J. Gable who was put on the one game today and I think it's probably fair to give him a look and see if he can find some traction. For Toronto's offense, this comes down to protecting the football and protecting McLeod Bethel-Thompson. It's not too often you can walk away from a football game thinking you'd have probably won if you only turned the ball over four times, but that's likely in the minds of those Argonaut players this week. Bethel Thompson needs to find the happy medium between being a gunslinger or being checked down Charlie, because neither of those extremes is going to help his cause against an Edmonton defense that turned in another strong effort last week, despite taking the loss. The Eskimos don't have a ball hawk like Trey Roberson back there, but coverage has been strong nonetheless, though this appears to be the most talented group of receivers they'll have faced up until now. I actually don't mind the chances of Darrell Walker and company finding some openings against a defense that plays a lot of one-on-one due to the number of blitzers they like to send, especially with the news today that Forrest Hightower is heading to the sixth game, but whether or not the quarterback can get the ball to them is another matter. Even though the Eskimo blitz wasn't as effective as an overall tactic last week as it had been previously, they still got significant pressure on Vernon Adams. I'd expect a steady dose of the same thing against a Toronto offensive line that hasn't looked very good for much of this season. Bethel Thompson hasn't shown the same ability to complete off-balance throws that Adams showed last week, and I think pressure is likely to cause problems. Jacques Chaptelaine is going to have to try to identify what allowed the Owls offense to have some success against this blitz beyond great individual efforts from Adams, and incorporate it as best he can. I figured there was a good chance this spread was going to eventually reach double digits, but I'm surprised to see it open there and still get a bunch of steam on the Eskimos. I think this is probably another lower scoring game, and I expect Edmonton's defense probably forces Toronto into enough mistakes that they win this game in the end, but it's difficult to lay this many points if you're not confident the favorite can get to 30. With the way Edmonton's offense has operated the last three weeks, I don't think that's very likely without a big play on defense or specials. Obviously Toronto has given up a huge amount of those, but Edmonton is at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of creating them, with a defense that has gotten a ton of sacks but very few picks, and hasn't had much from their return game, though I did think Martise Jackson finally showed signs of life against the Owls. My hesitation with backing the Argos at what I think is now a pretty generous number comes down to the effects of two straight weeks on the road, and that for all of Jason Moss's tactical shortcomings, Corey Chamberlain has been a big problem in that regard as well. We saw again last week another ridiculous decision to punt, down two scores with less than three minutes on the clock. Then you had Edmonton electing to throw on a third and one gamble in the first quarter, something that just really doesn't make sense, and something they've had real issues with so far, that being their fourth third and short gamble of the season by my count. Bottom line, neither coach is moving the needle in terms of in-game tactical decisions, and bad calls tend to deflate scoring more than the other way around. I think if Toronto were to brush up against 14, it would probably be too much to turn down at that point. But sitting around 12 now, I'm interested to see if there's some pushback coming and where this eventually settles at. For a lot of the reasons outlined, I'd lean pretty confidently towards under on the 53 total. We've generally seen in recent weeks that strong defenses are having their say more so than offenses. And until they show otherwise, I'll trust the Eskimo defense to keep this one low scoring. It's not hard to identify the game of the week this week, and that will take place in Hamilton on Friday night as the visiting Winnipeg Blue Bombers attempt to maintain the CFL's only perfect record. This line opened at minus 2.5 in favour of the Tiger Cats, but in a serious case of you blink and you miss it, this flipped to minus 2 for the Bombers in what appeared to be literal minutes. I've never seen a move that quick, and it's somewhat amusing to see a Ticats team that has been shorted a few times by the books this year suddenly have such a wave of action go against them. 
The total was the only number this week to come in at 55 or greater, and it has trended down now sitting at 54. Hamilton is coming in off a of bye week, which I've spent plenty of time mentioning so far this year, but we did see a bit of a reversal in trend last week with the Riders coming out and moving the ball pretty effectively against the Lions from the get-go despite coming off a of bye. We're now at the point in the season where the benefits of a two-week break to deal with nagging injuries and fatigue is perhaps at an equilibrium with the negative effects of not being on a football field for a week and losing some of your timing. This game definitely has a strength versus strength on all sides of the ball aspect to it. Both teams come in with offenses that have had no trouble scoring, defenses that rank at or near the top of the league, and special teams units that have provided plenty of fireworks. We do know that at least one of these defenses is going to be missing a big disruptor in the middle of the field. Simone Lawrence's suspension fiasco is finally settled, and he will be in civvies for this one. That's a tough body to lose in advance of a matchup against Andrew Harris, and that's going to put a lot of pressure on a linebacking core that wasn't a particularly strong area to begin with. On the Winnipeg side, Adam Big Hill remains questionable, and it's starting to feel like whatever is ailing him might be a little more serious than they let on initially. Three straight games of being considered questionable during the week and then being scratched within 24 hours or so of kickoff is a bit odd, and we'll see if this pattern finally gets broken this week. With the disclaimer that it has come against Ottawa on Toronto, the Bombers have managed fine on defense without Big Hill, and I don't believe his potential absence is going to have as big of an impact as Lawrence's will. One injury that might not be getting the attention it deserves is the loss of Sean Thomas Erlington in the Hamilton backfield. This offense has clearly taken a step back since he was carted off the field early in Hamilton's eventual loss to Montreal three weeks ago. A run game that had been trampling opponent defenses better than anyone in the league hit a brick wall against Calgary. Perhaps not coincidentally, the passing game also dropped off significantly, and Jeremiah Masoli continues to struggle with bad decisions in the red zone, tossing yet another end zone pick that took points off the board. Malik Irons, and Anthony Coombs if they bother to use him, should still be able to run with reasonable effectiveness behind this offensive line, but Thomas Erlington's explosiveness isn't something they've been able to replace. With the way Winnipeg's defensive front has devoured the run game, I could definitely see another night of tough sledding along the ground, but if there was an offensive line out there who might be able to win a battle against these Bombers, this one would probably be your first choice. I don't want to sell this offense too short, considering the number of big plays they've been able to connect on and the points they've scored. But I'm still a little concerned with the lack of production outside of those explosive plays. This Winnipeg secondary, with the way they've been playing right now, isn't going to make life easy for Brandon Banks. And I think the Tiger Cats will need to rely a little less on the home run plays in this one. We saw what happened against the Stampeders when those plays failed to materialize, and it was an offensive showing that needed to be bailed out by two scores in the return game. But if Hamilton has been a little too reliant on big gainers, it's fair to ask the same questions of Winnipeg and whether or not it's sustainable through the rest of the season. The Bombers, for all the points they've scored, are only operating at a 52% overall success rate on offense, which is pretty modest for a 5-0 team that won most of those games in rather convincing fashion. One thing that is nearly certain is that Winnipeg will be facing the strongest defense they've seen since they played Edmonton back in Week 3. This isn't an offense that has had to play from behind at all since their season opener, and I think there's definitely the chance of them getting pushed out of their comfort zone in a game that seems destined to be close. If I'm Paul Lapalise, I'm drawing up plays to exploit the hole left by Simone Lawrence, and with Lucky Whitehead as an option on the jet sweep, and obviously Harris as a dual threat in the run and pass games, he should have the personnel to do it. As long as Winnipeg can consistently pick up 5 plus yards on first downs, they can limit the number of deeper throws they need to make against a defense that's been pretty effective against the pass, 
though they did give up too many big plays against the Stampeders last time out. Hamilton has generally been more vulnerable along the ground than through the air so far, so expect a busy night for Harris and likely some action out of Nick Dembski as well. In terms of the numbers we're concerned with, well, if you were fast, and I mean very fast, on the draw, you're one of the fortunate few that has Winnipeg plus a point or two in your back pocket. Now the question is, has the market bet all the value out of this number? From a statistical perspective, I still lean Winnipeg at the current price. I'm more concerned with the spot. There's a reason that we continually hear about how these teams have such and such record for the first time in a long time. In this case, it's Winnipeg being 5-0 for the first time since 1960. And that's because this has always been a league that simply doesn't tend to produce a lot of extreme outliers when it comes to wins and losses. Very good teams still usually lose one out of three games, and if you don't bring your A game, you're susceptible to a loss regardless of opponent. How many weeks in a row Winnipeg can show up and execute starts to become a valid question heading into week seven without a blemish. And is Hamilton the team that can do enough good things themselves to capitalize if the Bombers hit a speed bump and make a couple of mistakes out there? I think when in doubt you need to trust your numbers, and I don't think taking the Tiger Cats would be something you'd seriously consider unless this moves past a field goal, but at the same time I wouldn't exactly be racing to the window with my life savings to back Winnipeg on the road after a pair of easy home wins. Don't mind the number, just don't love the spot. The total is edging downwards in this one, as we're now seeing some 53s start to pop up on the board. These offenses can score, and so can their special teams units, but the general trend so far this season has been good defenses trumping anything else when it comes to these totals. We saw a fair number of games end up getting over in the early going, with the help of all the extra roughing calls that were sustaining drives, but the players do appear to be making the adjustments, and we're seeing a little less of this than we were a few weeks ago. In agreement with the market, I too liked the under at 55 when it opened, but I'd be a little more hesitant on 53. Reason being, there's still a pretty good chance of surviving six majors at the original number. You're on pretty thin ice at 53 though if that were to happen. I'll repeat what I said last week about movement in the 50-55 to 55 point window being key, which is something that's often overlooked. Okay, final game on tap is of course the rematch between the now 1-5 BC Lions and the 2-3 Rough Riders who triumphed at home last Saturday, and will be attempting to do so again as three-point favorites in Vancouver. Your over-under is sitting right around 52 points, and we haven't seen much movement yet on either side of these lines. I thought last week's matchup was probably a little closer than the final score indicated, but this was another case of coming away feeling that the Lions, slow learners that they are, were their own worst enemy. I liked what Brandon Rutley did for the run game in the early going, and then they went away from it. Saskatchewan did a good job of adjusting and came up with several stuffs in the second quarter, but I'm not sure what the hesitation was to run the ball in second and less than five yard situations. They graded successful all four of the times they ran on second down, but we still saw two or three drives needlessly killed by incomplete long balls when they really weren't needed. The real turning point in this game had to be Marcus Thigpen's kickoff return touchdown that came with less than a minute remaining in the first half. BC was poised to go to the locker room with the lead, and you just can't have that kind of letdown from your coverage unit in that situation. This was a really nice rebound game from Cody Fajardo, who was surprisingly effective rushing the ball on design quarterback runs, and of course through the air, where he lit the lines up with four passes that went for 35 plus yards. The Riders were extremely efficient overall in this game, needing only 43 offensive snaps total, which is crazy low for a team that is moving the ball effectively, and incredibly, they only face 2nd and 10 or longer twice in the whole game. 
BC's offensive line once again came under fire for their inability to protect Mike Riley, and it was baffling to both myself and the commentators that Devon Claybrooks kept him in the game until the final whistle. In addressing the media this week, Claybrooks admitted to being concerned for his starting quarterback's welfare, but by the sounds of it, staying in the game was Riley's call to make. There's really no need to point out how backwards this philosophy is, and at this point I think it's time for the Lions fans to be concerned about the lack of control their head coach seems to have over his team, or at least the most important member of it. Riley's captain going down with the ship mentality may be admirable in the minds of a few, but to me it reeks of selfishness and recklessness. A leader needs to do what's best for his team, and preventing inexperienced backups from seeing any game action at all, on top of the injury risk to himself, is not that. Looking ahead to this week's game, Claybrooks didn't sound like a man with a lot of answers, which is worrisome. BC has done plenty of good things on both sides of the ball this year, they just haven't been able to do them for more than a quarter or two at a time. It's fair to wonder at this stage why this coaching staff has shown such an inability to adjust in-game when things stop working, and also why they themselves seem to abandon what was working the first moment it doesn't. At this point, it's difficult to think the Lions are suddenly going to have things click for a full 60 minutes, and honestly, I'm expecting more of the same this Saturday. That's not to say another loss is automatically coming down the pipe, but it seems inevitable that self-inflicted wounds are going to play a role again. The wild card here might be what adjustments the BC secondary is able to make this week to avoid a repeat of last Saturday. I would say Cody Fajardo is probably one more good game away from relegating Zach Caleros to backup status going forward, even if he does return from injury, and the double threat ability he was showing last game bodes well going forward, in a West division that looks to be bursting at the seams with defensive talent right now. The Lions brought in former Ryder defensive back Cresden Butler this week in light of what happened back there on Saturday. I'm not sure this is really going to have much of an impact, and in fairness this defense hasn't actually been that bad against the pass but the timing of the breakdowns has been admittedly awful. Butler is still on the practice roster as of this recording, so fair to assume he's a week away from suiting up. The biggest concern for the Riders on offense has to be on the line again, as Philip Blake now joins the ranks of the injured after suffering a broken leg. I think BC's biggest strategic failing on defense last time out was not bringing enough of a blitz against an offensive line that was patchwork even before Blake went down. It sounds like Darius Bladek is probably going to be back this week, and despite holding up well last game, that's certainly welcome news for a unit that is going to be missing three starters yet again. Coach Dickinson made mention of the fact that Blake has graded the best out of all their linemen so far this season, so that's something to keep in mind. Kicker Brett Lowther is going to be a game-time decision, and reading between the lines at Dickinson's presser, I'd lean towards him being scratched. This line hasn't seen a lot of activity so far, pretty much holding firm at minus three, and I think that reflects a general market uncertainty about whether the Riders' offense can put it together for two weeks in a row, and whether or not BC is going to blow a hole in their own foot again. Saskatchewan's injury situation worries me a little, but I really like the way the Riders made use of Fajardo's mobility to combat the injuries on the O-line, and they'll have to do that again here. They also managed to manufacture a lot of points as well, and what I mean by that is the two monster punt singles out of John Ryan, as well as forcing BC into conceding a safety, and then the special team score that I referenced earlier. At the end of the day, that's 11 points created out of nothing really, and you're not going to lose too many games when you're able to do that, as Calgary has proven for years. BC, on the other hand, cropped out on two trips to the red zone, so they were giving away opportunities at the same time as Saskatchewan is creating them. One thing to note as well is that Saskatchewan hasn't played a road game in over a month, and they had a recent bye week. 
they should be fresh in this one and might have a leg up on the Lions in that respect as BC is the lone team in the CFL yet to have a bye week. There's just a lot to unpack here and a lot of it is difficult to quantify. We haven't seen too many deadlines yet this year but I think this one qualifies. I don't think it's very likely at all that the riders move through the key number of three, but it's hard to envision enough people backing a frustrating Lions squad to move it significantly in their direction either. This is shaping up to be one of those cases where you can probably wait until game day to see if any late injury news leaks out over the next couple of days, as opposed to making a play now. The total looks to be getting a shade of overaction, nudging half a point upwards to 52.5. Keep in mind you've got climate control BC Place as your venue, so playing the over before checking the weather report isn't a factor here. I'd lean slightly towards the over, mainly with the Lions in mind. BC has started games well enough on offense to trust that they'll at least show up in the first half, and opponents have generally succeeded in keeping pace and eventually surpassing them. The first half total specifically might be something to have a good look at for this reason, assuming you can find it at 26.5 or better. Well, the Eskimos faltering in Montreal has ended our nice little run of four straight hits on the best bet, and I'm going to throw my lot in with their arch-rivals to the south this week and proclaim Calgary minus five and a half as the best bet on the board right now. Although if you were to suggest that this is mainly a fade of the Red Blacks more than anything, you would not be wrong. Alright, that'll wrap up our show for week seven. Hopefully we all learned a thing or two. Next week I'm planning on taking a look at the updated Grey Cup futures, and I'll maybe try to sprinkle in some analysis of the limited but often lucrative CFL props market for a change of pace. Hope to have you back again next time. Thanks as always for listening, and whatever side you're on this week, best of luck. Now go grab that cash.